0: I think we we'll, we can go ahead and get started. So, um, Dr. Farhadian was one of my professors at Westmont, um, and uh, I don't know. I think I've told him he's probably that one of his classes that I took, in in essence, saved my faith, um, mm-hmm. and so I'll be forever grateful to you, Dr. Farhadian, for. Wow. Um, missiology and studying contextual theology um and so we are gifted to have him with us and i think he just wants to have a conversation with us about some thoughts he's had about intimacy with god so dr farhadian go ahead take it away and we're so happy that you're here so thank you great
1: well thank you nikki and um and i'm charlie of course right nikki isn't it weird when you have to go to go to that and move past the doctor stuff but nikki i really appreciate what you said um that's encouraging to know about the the missiology class. But um, so anyway, thank you um, all for being here. You get extra credit for having to deal with Zoom. And um, I'll just say that when Nikki asked if I would um, teach this class or make a one-time talk, um, I wanted to choose a topic that was challenging to me personally Um, it would have been pretty easy for me to give you a nice intro to Buddhism or Confucianism or Islam. Uh, You know, this is what I do and I enjoy world religions. I enjoy mission and what's called missiology. But um, what I really wanted to do is to stretch my own thinking um, around this topic of intimacy with God. And so what I want to do is I have some notes here I want to um, share with you what I'm thinking and um, I'm very user friendly. I love you to, to jump in whether you raise your hand or just say, hey, I have thoughts on that as well, okay? Um, and as a professor, I could talk for a long time but I also don't really um, enjoy doing the monologue as much. I see Ray there getting on board. It's great to see right. you, Ray, really great. Um, So I want to start with some biblical reflections and uh, just read these passages as a way to uh, put the biblical text, God's word out there as we, uh, so I won't be unpacking God's word, but just to have them in the air. Uh, These are uh, inspired words by God, but this is Psalm 103 and I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good as long as you live? So that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. And it goes on and on. I wanna start with some really big ideas about intimacy with God. And um, first thing I wanna just mention is we're talking about God. And this is not some vague notion of God. Now I teach world religion, so I I have to be really attuned, and I hope you are too. Be attuned to how we use the word God, G-O-D. I'm a real fan of using predicates, that is descriptions when we talk about God. So we're talking about the triune God, is, that,
2: is it okay to record you so I can watch? Yes,
1: I think, it's, I, think, I think Nikki is recording. Okay. And I'm Thank sure you. that'll be available.
2: Okay,
1: no. No charge. <laughs> but yeah, I want to I start with God. And of course, we could spend the rest of our lives talking about God, and there are professional theologians who do that. But um, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and it makes our faith unique. And this is a reality. This is objective. It's foundational. God is the really real, right? And uh, God delights in us, and God takes pleasure in us. There's some verses I want to share, mostly from Psalms right here, uh, right now. Uh, Just not the entire Psalm, but just give you a sense of who God is and how much God loves us. This is a bit from Psalm 119, as you know, the longest Psalm in the Bible. I run down the path because you set me free. Isn't that awesome? Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you Lord know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? In Psalm 73, I am always with you. And it goes on, you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It is good to be near God. Psalm 16, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And then Psalm 119 again, that very long Psalm. It reminds us that God gives us a new heart and takes away our hearts of stone. It's amazing that God delights in us. God actually takes pleasure in us. Uh, 1 John 4 says, whoever does not love God does not know God, because God is love. As you know, John is the great writer of the God is love language, right? But he says that. God is love. This is not an attribute of God, just what God does. This is who God is. God is love. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you With an everlasting love. So, this is not only God who loves and is love, but loves with an everlasting love forever. And then Psalm 103 but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. There's something new there, isn't there? It's not just a God who loves, but loves those who fear him. We're beginning to scratch the surface of our, our part in this intimacy with God, right? I sure hope that you could take one or two things away from the few minutes we have together. Um, and uh, hopefully the Lord will work in, uh, in these few comments I'll have for you. I want to start with a kind of a technical discussion. I mean, you'll be able to get it. I decided not to put a PowerPoint up there. Um, I could do that, but um, but I just will remind you that this is recording, and so and I could also do this if you're interested. I could send some of the longer passages that I'm going to read. I could send those to Nikki if if you're interested, so you don't have to get stressed out about writing things. If you find um, some of these longer passages that I'm going to read um, interesting, okay, just look to Nikki, and if, I could send those to her. But there's a word, and I'm not going to put Nikki on the spot. It's a theological word, and it's called homoousios. Homoousios. Homo means same. Usios means substance, maybe even essence. So homoousios means the same substance. And I just want to make a, a kind of a technical point here before we dive in, that when we think about intimacy with God, sometimes we think of the very spiritual part of all that, which is very important. But I also wanna put out something that's very earthy and very fleshy in a good way, which is this word homoousios. And here's what I mean. As you know, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't say three in one, but we say God has three persons in one essence and god the son is jesus christ we think of jesus fully human fully divine but here's where i want to use homoousios we say jesus is homoousios with the father in that he's the same substance as the father but here's the something that might be new for you or something to underscore do you know that jesus is homoousios with us in our flesh. That is by virtue of the fact that Jesus shares our very particular human flesh. He is homoousios. He has the same substance as our flesh. This is a God who really knows us well. I say that because when I teach Hinduism and I talk about Vishnu who descends as an incarnation, technically it's in the form of a human, but Krishna, Rama, these other kinds of deities and other religions, they don't share the exact same flesh. And it's easy to overlook that in our own faith, that God who loved us, loved us so much to send the very self of God, God's son, Jesus Christ, to share our very self, our very flesh. And that makes it possible for us to be connected to the life of the triune God. So I want to sort of put out there the importance of the flesh, believe it or not, in intimacy with God. It's not just spiritual, but God has stooped down to be intimate with us. Well, one thing I want to say is, and I'm a nonlinear thinker, so I'm going to follow my notes here, because if you're a linear type, it's okay. I hope you'll be able to follow me. (laughs) I'm more African in the way I communicate. But one thing I'd like to say is we, you and I, I, we cannot do anything to make God intimate with us we can't force God's hand. It's God's choice. Now, it's amazing. God is love. God loves. But we can't force God to be intimate with us. I I can't force God's hand. In fact, if I do, it's probably a form of magic. If you look up magic, like in a encyclopedia or dictionary of anthropology it will say something like an attempt to control spiritual forces and we do when we do things down here to try to get the attention of the gods that can very well be a form of magic and so i want to separate a kind of a magical way of engaging with god and being a disciple being one who follows and then developing certain disciplines, right? Those words are related. Again, magic seeks to manipulate the divine, but a relationship of a disciple as discipleship is about following, about submitting, about trusting. We trust this one who is full of grace, uh, realizing there's nothing I can do to force the hand of, of God but I can be in a place where I can receive God's intimacy. And I think that's what I would want to focus on. I like this notion of spreading our sails, spreading our sails. We can't force God, but we could be in a position. We could be positioned and used by the Holy Spirit to receive God and God's fullness to receive who God is. It's like a camera up to the light, capturing the light. I want to be available to you, Lord, for your mercy to be loved by you, etc. So that's the way I like to see it is intimacy is not forcing God's hand, but it's saying, I want my sail to be ready to capture that wind of the spirit. I think there are some real things that we can do. Well, there's some obstacles. We know that. We know that, and um, each one of us could talk about that. Obstacles like hurts or traumas or wounds that we carry. If we go with Freud, and I think Freud does have something important to say here, believe it or not, for all the, uh, that we dismiss him, it, he's the one who would say something like, well, the, the relationship we have with our earthly father colors the relationship we have with our heavenly father. Of course, Freud didn't believe in the existence of God, But he's one to say, if you had a close relationship with your earthly father, you would probably have a perceived close relationship with your heavenly father. At any rate, um, these traumas, whatever they are, these hurts, we all have a past. uh, We know they could drive us towards God or they could drive us away from God. And this is the stuff of novels, right? And films and our own real struggles with the Lord. Uh, obstacles we might intellectually really want to be close to the Lord Um, yeah and so I'm sure we each have stories of those real real challenges right I would say another real obstacle beyond just our past hurts and wounds etc but what many have called in the spiritual uh, literature uh, our false selves or what Brendan Manning calls our imposter self our imposter self, rather than the true self that God has given us. We rely on our false self. And the false self, the imposter self, gets in the way. We think of Mary and Ma- Martha story where the busyness becomes a real problem. And Jesus says, she has chosen the better thing. That is the, th- the one... Um, the one who was with me rather than being busy. That, that's the better thing. Uh, this is a modern story, isn't it? Because we're all busy. I mean, we get a lot of kudos, right? I'm very busy right now. Don't talk to me. Oh, you must be so important, right? But these hurts, these traumas, perhaps even these false selves, once we recognize those, could create a space for God to work especially when we recognize these false selves. Um, Here's a quote by Simon Tugwell. And again, I could send these to Nikki. And uh, this is in a book called The Beatitudes. And so like runaway slaves, we either flee to our own reality or manufacture a false self, which is mostly admirable and superficially happy. We hide what we know or feel ourselves to be, which we assume to be unacceptable and unlovable behind some kind of appearance, which we hope will be more pleasing. We hide behind pretty faces, which we put on for the benefit of our public. And in time, we may even come to forget that we are hiding and think that our assumed pretty face is what we really look like. I'll insert a story here, I wasn't planning to tell, but it's, um, I guess it's apropos now, but I work with a pretty remote people on the Western half of New Guinea. um, And I've been going to that island for over 35 years. Uh, I tell students, it's it's weird, but I know that island better than anywhere outside of the United States for me. Uh, So it's just sort of, you know, I did my PhD dissertation about the people there, et cetera. But when I think of suffering, when I think of true self, false self, sometimes I think about these people called the Dani. The Dani are famous in the western part of New Guinea. And uh, it's a long story, but I'll keep it real short. What they do is they cut their fingers off as a way to uh, try to achieve eternal life. And I'm going to set that aside. There's a logical reason why they do that. They begin with their smallest finger at the first knuckle and they just start cutting it away uh, at every death in the family and after they're done cutting their fingers except for the thumb and their first finger because they're agriculturalists then they'll start working on their ears and they start chopping pieces off their ears and I think to myself oh my goodness if you and I went into those villages you don't have to speak a word of that language because the history of suffering is written indelibly on their bodies. But we in the West, I mean, you could go to you could go there and, and you could look at a an elderly woman and say to yourself, right? Oh my goodness, you have really suffered. You're missing all your fingers. But the way we do suffering is we privatize it, right? We suffer in our own homes. Maybe we pay somebody to give us some talk therapy that makes us feel better. And then when we're ready to go to church or out in public, we put our face back on again when we go out in public, but, but the, the wounds that we're carrying can be really hidden from view. And that's one thing I admire about the Doni people and others from the highlands of the Western part of New Guinea because they don't hide these wounds. And I say that because those wounds could, I think get in the way of her intimacy with the Lord. Now it's interesting and and, uh, again, you could think of your own stories. I think of some of the great missionaries, just as examples, who have suffered. I think of Amy Carmichael, 20 years in bed in Southern India after a, a horrible fall, 20 years in bed and she was doing ministry William Carey lost his wife and at least one child. But many missionaries suffered so much. And you know what? Uh, Sometimes they really struggle with intimacy with the Lord. If you don't believe me, look at uh, Mother Teresa. (laughs) You could read her journal, which she never wanted published, right? Uh, You know, uh, her real struggles with the Lord. And yet she's sort of a paragon of of, of sort of missionary virtue, if you will. So what do we do with these losses? Do do they drive drive us closer to the Lord or drive us further from the Lord? And how do we think about the false selves that are so easily encouraged in our own culture, whether it's systems of prestige or whatever. I was thinking about low self-esteem also. It's a false sense of esteem that could get in the way. And here's a quote from David Siemens. Again, I'm going to send this to Nikki. Many Christians find themselves defeated by the most psychological weapon that Satan uses against them. This weapon has the effectiveness of a deadly missile. Its name, low self-esteem satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut level feeling of inferiority inadequacy and low self-worth i don't know about you but sounds familiar to me this feeling shackles many christians in spite of wonderful spiritual experiences and knowledge of god's word although they understand their position As sons and daughters of God, they are tied up in knots, bound by a terrible feeling of inferiority and chained to a deep sense of worthlessness. Uh, Yeah, so for some of us, it's uh, an incorrect view of our esteem, of ourself. I want to push this category a little bit though, because the language of esteem and self-esteem I don't want to say it's just a Western concept, but uh, particularly in the context of counseling, you know, trying to raise one's self-esteem, um, I looked into the early church, and I just really like this reading I want to share with you because it really questions this notion of self-esteem altogether. So it, it doesn't—it doesn't in the early church, and this is the fifth century of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, it's questioning even the notion of self-esteem as helpful in getting to know God, okay? So this is a fifth century um, from a fifth century document uh, from Saint Diadokos. He was the bishop in northern Greece, and again, I'm going to send this to Nikki. I'm going to read it very slowly, and it's uh, something probably you've never heard of before, even the idea Uh, I think would be new and um, something to really, you know, ponder for a while, you know, not just the, you know, two minutes it takes to read this or less than that. But here it is. Spiritual discourse always keeps the soul free from self-esteem, for it gives every part of the soul a sense of light so that it no longer needs the praise of men. In the same way, such discourse keeps the mind free from fantasy, transfusing it completely with the love of God. Discourse deriving from the wisdom of this world, on the other hand, always provokes self-esteem because it is incapable of granting us the experience of spiritual perception. It inspires its adepts with a longing for praise, being nothing but the fabricated or a fabrication of conceited men. It follows therefore that we can know with certainty when we are in the proper state to speak about God If during the hours when we do not speak, we maintain a fervent fervent remembrance of God in untroubled silence. I like that. I don't know about you, but I find that very attractive. Remembrance of God. And again, this is triune God, the God who is love, the God who descended and took up our human flesh, felt hunger, et cetera. In untroubled silence. So I'll send this uh, this nugget to Nikki. Um, spiritual discourse always keeps the soul free from self-esteem. So I want to say, and this is my interpretation of this passage: There's something about the about God esteem that we ought to be after. That I want to be after, because when I compare myself with anyone, I always lose. And what is the messed up metric that 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 has that I've been socialized into? I've written some books. Well, there are people who wrote, wrote more books than me. I got a Ph.D., but I know how, how ignorant I am. Do you know you know what I'm saying? I've got a couple of Japanese cars. I want a European car. Okay, welcome to the human race. Um, But when I can, and I'm saying when, I can dip into this deeper reality, I think, wow, Lord, thank you, thank you. Uh, I could turn down the noise. Uh, There's a lot of good things about our culture, but uh, there's things that perhaps ought to be turned down, right? Um, We'll take this a little bit deeper. to me, it's deeper in terms of the challenge because, and this is where I, I, I haven't, I wrap my, I, I, I'm not there. And I'm, There's not a false humility, humility statement, but one lesson I learned from missionaries, and this is, starts from the Bible, by the way, not just an interpretation of mission, but, but biblically, as well as people who live out the mission of God. They do so because they identify with the risen Christ. They do so because they identify with the risen Christ. Uh, That it seems to be our true identity and our lasting identity. That God loves us, God loves me, which sometimes I don't, I get up here, I don't get in the heart very often and that my fundamental identity is with the one who has conquered death. Uh, And at times when I feel like I have a little glimpse of that, um, it's good, it's very peaceful. Most of the time I don't, just to be honest. That's why I wanted to think about this topic. Most of the time I'm fighting with my imposter self this fake self that's in hiding, that lives in fear, that's fear, fearful of human disapproval. I wanna be smarter, I wanna be wiser. I'm preoccupied with acceptance and, and approval from others. This need to please other, you know, others, you know, the burden of having to say something. And I'm always asking myself, what's the metric of my life? And by what what measure do I actually see myself? It steals our joy, steals my joy, and it robs you and I of understanding our true selves in Christ. When we get comfortable with the imposter or false self, we can buy into these outside experiences that furnish this personal sense of meaning. It's a pursuit of money or power, glamour, recognition, status. Our self-importance is elevated, but it's an illusion of success, I think. Perhaps it's even a form of idolatry because it prompts us to attach ourselves to what ultimately has no importance. It's not to say that at least the way I understand our Christian faith, we live in a real world, right? I mean, I don't think our world is saying deny material reality, but um, I think the challenge for me is what do I fundamentally identify with and attach myself to as something that is ultimately life-giving. So what to do? Uh, and we're going to finish here in a, mi- a few minutes, and then uh, just you guys have all been so patient. But and then it'd be great to hear your reflections, um, even if you want to take us in a different um, different direction. That's fine. But I finish with you know what to do. What do we do? I've uh, written. Let me see. Nine or ten things. They're very short. Uh, I guess eight, I trimmed it down. Should have been seven or 10 or 12, one of those special numbers. How about 40, <laughs> how about just 40 points? <laughs> no, I don't think that would work. But I'm thinking about raising the sail, raising this metaphor I think is really helpful. Um, one thing, and this is my first point here on sort of what to do or how to be when seeking intimacy with God. Um, Memorize scripture. These are all going to be so basic, but memorize scripture. I think of the Psalms as a great place to start to make them our own, as though I wrote them, as you wrote them. Um, Psalm one thirty nine, Psalm seventy three, Psalm sixteen. I I read a little bit of those um, when I started. They're about intimacy with intimacy with God. There's a lot of Psalms about intimacy with God. And it'll help us to be open to God, to memorize scripture, to internalize it. A second point is to share in Christ's suffering. I don't think anybody wants to do that. I have met people who will never show up in the history books who who have sought to share in Christ's suffering by being in difficult places uh, in the front line of their work you could call it social justice, you could call it um, evangelism, but doing very difficult work. They seek it, but uh, sharing in Christ's suffering. And by one way we could do that is by sharing in the mission of God, the mission of the triune God. Philippians three, I long to know Christ and share in his suffering. That would help I think with intimacy. And I think it means stepping out into kind of an unknown. I'll give you a little example in my life, which is it's, it's I don't want to minimize it, but I was so tired of what I call garbage can conversations with my neighbors. Just really tired of it. I have neighbors who I would say probably within the next five years, I don't know if some of them will be alive. You know, they're retired, they have no hope. Physically, it's harder for them to even walk out and get their meal. So a friend and, my, uh, and I, we just started knocking on doors of our neighborhood and said, so we we're gonna just gather, talk about questions of life. We're gonna look at the Bible. And it was not fun to be rejected, but we got a little baby Bible study going out of it. And you know, um, That's not big suffering, but you know, now my neighbors know. You know, I've identified myself as a Christian and um, I have no problem when it's appropriate saying I'm praying for you. And uh, anyway, so sharing Christ's suffering, that could be today. Number three, to pray. Prayer is so, so important. It's more than communication, isn't it? It's communion. And I don't know about you, but there's a psychological almost obstacle. And this is, this is huge, I think, um, because we say, okay, we worship this triune God. God knows everything. Why would I have to pray? Or I pray these sort of formulaic prayers that have sort of emerged through, you know, through mealtime or whatever. Lord, we thank you for, Lord. And you know, I, I can't judge that. That's how I pray oftentimes too. But taking it in a deeper way is really helpful. Confessing our sins. Being honest with our fears and our hopes. I'm not telling God something he doesn't know. But we can grow in intimacy. I want to share a story. And this is something I hope you'll really take with you because it's, for me, it's the take, one of the great takeaway stories in the few minutes we have here together is and and I'm I'm borrowing it from Trevor Hudson. Trevor Hudson is a a Methodist pastor in South Africa. He's a white South African. I don't know if he's published this. Uh, He is an author, his work is really great to read, but uh, he shared this with a small group of us one day when he visited the United States. Because we're talking about prayer and some of us raised this question, like, well, God knows everything. So can't I just sort of say some things that are almost superficial? We're just being brutally honest. He said, here's here's a story that was in his life, and I share it. He said, "Uh, my daughter was going to get married. And this is, of course, in South Africa. And uh, sometime before the wedding, she had a horrible car accident and her face was disfigured. So he has the heart of a father. That's Trevor Hudson. He said one day his daughter came up to him and put her head on his shoulder and said, Daddy, I'm afraid. So I think Of course, Trevor knew she was afraid because she was gonna, she was facing an operation that week. Would this guy marry her? She's gonna look different. So Trevor Hudson used that as an example of being honest with God. And in my own prayer life, again, I try to stop and it's so hard to stop and say, Lord, what, do that inner sort of inventory on me. I want to be that intimate with you. Of course, you know. And um, to pray honestly, to pray t- transparently and boldly, prayer's action. I've also purchased some prayer books recently. I've got some early church books, some medieval, some uh, Puritan. They're really helpful. Sometimes I'll dip in. I have them all together on my shelf. I'll pull one off, and it's just great. I need the words of others. A fourth uh, point here is to to be disciplined with the triune God, and that is to recognize God through the day and have times of prayer, kind of developing these disciplines, and there are many of them, right? Number five, look into our past. I know for me, my father and I were not close at all. He, um, he could have been my grandfather. He would have been 100 years old this year. I'm in my mid-50s. He was, um, he was in World War II. He was shot. He was in the hospital for four years. Uh, I had a very distant relationship with him. So I think that's partly why I have extra hurdles in my life but I wanna look at those things and, uh, and work through them and say, Lord, you are different, right? Number, um, I guess this is six, surround ourselves by stories and people that demonstrate God's faithfulness and love. I love that, to be reminded of what God is doing. Of course, that could be in print or film or conversation. The next one, speak about what God is doing in our lives. I have a dear friend. She used to say, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I want to know what your life is with the Lord right now. What is going on? It's like, yeah, thank you. I know for me, I don't know if you have the same experience. When I get together with my Christian friends, sometimes I use the word fellowship. We're not really fellowshipping. And I want to uh, be careful because uh, it seems to me it's it's good to bring up our faith in <laughs> with our Christian friends and say, you know, how are you doing? It's great to have a nice meal or whatever we do, talk about what we're reading or films or whatever, but how can we pray for each other? In a sense, it seems to me, even among Christians, that's almost like going against the grain now. What a great way to reframe and say, you know, we're going to honor God. And even as a community, we could grow with in, in with greater intimacy to the Lord to, to share together. Um, I have here, burn the old tapes. It's a little bit on the psychological side. Burn the old tapes, spinning round in your head that, and I'm quoting here, that bind you up and lock you into a self-centered stereotype, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this quote ends that God says, you belong to me. You belong to me. I like that. So burn those old tapes. And then finally, to daily recognize that if you and I are, have been rege- regenerated by that powerful work of Jesus Christ, then we're new creations and we're children of the living God. And I want to use Brennan Manning's uh, phrase that he gave the title of his book, um, Abba's Child, that we recognize ourselves ourselves as Abba's child. I like that. Manning says this, my dignity as Abba's child is my most coherent sense of self. When I seek to fashion a self-image from the adulation of others and the inner voice whispers, you've arrived. You're a player in the kingdom enterprise. There's no truth in that self-concept. How we view ourselves at any given moment may have very little to do with who we really are. And finally, growing in intimacy with the triune God is a gentle growing into oneness with the crucified who has achieved peace through his blood on the cross. That's manning. I like this gentle growing into oneness. I like that. Well, in there, um, you guys have done well to listen. I know it's so awkward on Zoom. But does anything either capture your attention or would you want to contribute or even, um, yeah, go in a different direction? How have you grown in intimacy or where are areas where you see you would like to grow? So, yeah, Ray.
3: I, I, one one thing seemed to be a little bit lacking for me and I thought it maybe you'd address it and that is a barrier to intimacy and I think it, particularly in our area in our culture it's it's wealth
1: yeah
3: and jesus jesus has a lot to say about that and i think that makes us sort of immune to the to the reality of of the uh lacks in our lives yeah. where we're because we think we're healthy we don't think in, in some sense we don't think that we need jesus
1: yeah no that's right and um in Luke, and I forgot the Greek terms, but you have the category of rich and wealthy and and the Samaritans. But in Luke, all are called on to repent, and the wealthy, as a category, are those who are dependent on themselves, and that's a sin. That's a problem. And uh, and actually, it's I guess it's Luke Luke's gospel, at the very end, ends with the call to repentance and forgiveness. And that includes the kinds of uh, idols that we've created, right? Wealth tends to be our issue, right? Um, What other hurdles, Ray, do you think or others are particular to our context? Well,
3: I I think in our culture, I think another hurdle is is the idea of the self-made man, right? And 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 we, you know, I'm I'm the captain of my fate. I, yep. I control my destiny, mm-hmm. and and it, it's I think those are all sort of tied up together. But
1: yeah,
3: our our, our wealth helps us to believe it.
1: That's right. Um, I had a chance to be a chaplain at the largest and the first hospice in the nation. It's by, uh, by Yale, it's uh, in Brantford, which is outside of New Haven, Connecticut. So I had a chance to be with people at the very end of their lives. And it's absolutely amazing. And some of you have had that experience. It's a sacred experience. And it's amazing how everything is ripped away. And as you know, right, all the, I mean, they don't put, they don't put all the fancy degrees on the wall. They don't put all the books or whatever the other accomplishments are in that space, that hospice space. It's the drawing of their little granddaughter or whatever it is and those relational things. So why not, why don't we wake up, right? And it's hard.
0: Uh, I just have a question that is somewhat related. Do you think even the question of intimacy with God is Mm -hmm. a Western concept in and of itself? Like in your experience, I know you've had experience Mm -hmm. in, in a lot of different places, but would that be one of the main driving questions or is that almost just assumed or embodied already? I mean, does that make sense? Like, asking about this closeness with God do you think that's something that all Christians around the world are asking or do you think there's like a unique desperation to it in our culture
1: yeah that's really great I would say in terms of the cross-cultural uh, and this is of course very um un but in many parts of the world people are uh, are more prone to recognize spiritual realities, right? That is, the unseen is very much in the seen world, and they don't bifurcate. So it's the Western st- structure of our consciousness that bifurcates and says, "Well, that can't be possible." So we we start setting up this, these structures, what Peter Berger, the sociologist, calls, calls plausibility structures of what can be real and what cannot be real. But I do think, um, Nikki, there's a sense of individualism that's unique here, as we know. So people in the non-Western world, and not all, obviously, but more socio-centric or people who are more um, community-based in their identity, there's not this uh, driving sense of me as an individual, you know, trying to get to know God as an individual. So, yeah, I think it can be a reflection of the Jesus and me mentality that's so prevalent in the West. And I think there's a real reason for that. We could talk about we don't have time, but kind of the rising enlightenment, you know, before the enlightenment, there really was no notion of the individual. Like in the medieval period, you were who your father and your mother were. I mean, and you did what they did, but there's an economic uh Change here now. We're independent, and we're in—you know—we're we're autonomic. We're autonomous individuals. So autonomy means a lot unto myself. But we're not heteronomic. We're not a lot unto something else. Like we don't submit to the church. We have we have we have such great agency. So yeah, I think the partic- the individualism of the West for sure, Nikki. And I think the way that uh, spiritual realities are seen here is, is, um, it's not quite absent, is it? It's just, um, it's sort of like a a handicap. I'll give you a sense, and and this is not a spiritual reality. I was taking a hike with my sons the other day. Because I have all this experience in, in Papua, I have these guys come to my house. I had a guy seven weeks he was with me during COVID. He's a de- one of my dearest friends on the earth and he's from the Donnie people. He loves orchid burgers. Orchid's an hour from Santa Barbara, right? I turned him on to that stuff. Cause okay, he has not been here in, in eight years. And I said, you know, we're gonna go get a hamburger. We, we start driving. He can barely see the trees out there. He doesn't know, he says, we're going to orchid. I could see the trees. Those are the orchid trees. I'm like, when have have I ever noticed those trees? I said, that is exactly right. He could barely see those trees. And he just said, and he does that with birds. He said, you know, that bird lands every day at this time on that roof. I'm like, I didn't notice that. So those are not necessarily spiritual examples, but there's so many ways that we are so blind in the West right? And I think part of that is the spiritual life. Yeah.
2: Hey, Charlie, this is Kay. Hey, Kay. Are you familiar with Frank Laubach's Game with Minutes?
1: No, I've never heard of that.
2: Uh, Well, he was a missionary and a literacy teacher, and he came up with um, this idea that it was his goal to think about God at least once every minute of every day Uh waking waking minutes right oh my goodness and he has a book about it and I I have read it and I was I was hoping you had read it because I wanted to ask you what you thought about it because I um I guess I've tried it at points in my life and it just hasn't seemed to work for me I don't know if anyone else out there is familiar with it I guess not so anyway, never mind. I guess it's not worth discussing because you're familiar
1: with it. <laughs> well, remembrance is, it seems to me is super important, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is how, why Muslims pray five times a day or at least they should, and many don't, but that's, you know, this is how humans are. Um, but the idea is that they would pray five times a day as a way to remember Allah. But I would also say, you know, um, I think if we seek you know, if we, if we believe that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, hopefully we are gaining through our spiritual lives the mind and the heart of, of God. Mm-hmm. And, and we are somehow sharing in the life of the divine that is the Triune God. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's – that's not a comment that says I don't think we should be against disciplines. Disciplines are super important. But there's a, a change in our being that also takes place.
2: Mm-hmm. Excuse me, Charlie and
1: Kay. Yes.
2: Hi. Um, hi, I'm Jenny. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, I have a question for Kay, what country or what part of the world did Frank Laubach hail from or where did he, where where was he a missionary that time. I'm not sure I can remember correctly but I think it was the Philippines. Ah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I have had a father in law that'd be my husband's father was very observant of birds growing up and so this bird you know whether it was some interesting colorful parrot or you know who knows what in the philippines he would put out i don't know water he he noticed the bird and the bird kind of came to him daily (laughs) i remembered that and i thought that is really wonderful talk about you know anything with nature
1: really giving you a reminder of god like that yeah so Jenny, you like this, my, um, my friend, Marcus, who I told you came from Papua, uh, he talked about that bird. Mm-hmm. And he, I did my PhD on his people, but I still have a lot to learn. So it's so great to have him at literally at my table. I said, come <laughs> tell me about that bird. <laughs> like anthropologists would love to have access to these. you know. And he told me, he said, you know, there are birds that come to our village. And when they come, they're telling you that somebody's died. Oh, they're yeah. birds of death and they're birds of life. And so he said, it's. A, and now he's a really strong Christian. He's a Bible translator. He says, and um, I said, Marcus, really? Yeah. And then you go and you hike to that village. You know, the, the bird is coming and there's a message maybe from a, you go and they'll, they'll say, yeah, that person's died. Somebody's died. So it's not an exact science, right? But I have been more attuned to birds. Yes, and uh, you know I, I wanted to finish with Ray's comment which I which was about um, something that we think about all the time and yet we don't want to talk about which is wealth
2: mm-hmm.
1: not only in the United States but in this region, Santa Barbara sir and I would say also I just wanted to add this I think however we understand wealth, I think it's also uh, the point that that I like about what Ray is saying is, um, where are the idols to me i would put you right and that's where i think i would want to say lord i want to do business with you mm-hmm. uh, i want to smash i want to i want to, <laughs> to marginalize those idols mm-hmm. um, and if i'm bowing down to money i don't want that i have to be realigned somehow
3: mm-hmm.
1: but i would say that Maybe it's too easy to go with just the money, right but there are other things that also right it could be and I'm not an exercise, but you know in this town it could be just you know whatever God we've created. Anyway yeah. this is great. you guys are really good. Thank you so much for oh show this what is this conscious is when God sends son. i text you
0: (laughs) great well charlie thank you so much um this was amazing really really grateful to have you with us and you know we you're a brother in christ in santa barbara and thanks for serving us and coming alongside us um and then yeah so you'll email me some of those quotes and i'll make sure to pass on great and then could you pray for us um yes close
1: You're asking me, right? Yes. Good, I wanna make sure, good, thank you. Uh, Lord, thank you for the few minutes we could be together and teach us to be receptive to who you are. Dislodge, well first to reveal and dislodge the idols in our lives. Help us to identify with you as crucified and as risen. Help us to take time every day in untroubled silence, so that you will work in our lives and bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
2: amen. Amen.